I saw that I couldn't help uh, remember a little leadership meme I saw like a couple weeks ago that talks about weight. And what it meant is that's to ask yourself a question when you're in a meeting. You should always ask, why am I talking? W-A-I-T. Yeah, because <laughs> is it to show my expertise? Is it to take us down a rabbit trail? Is it, you know, so uh, that has a whole different concept of waiting. Uh, but it just jumped out me when I saw that. Waiting's hard. Um, for, for Bill and Bronco fans, waiting till next year is hard, right? If the Broncos are in the playoffs this year, we've got to wait for next year. But hope springs eternal, right? That's, that's the way it works. That's it. Uh, even the Cubs eventually won a World Series. So, you know, <laughs> every spring there was hope. Um, so, we've been, so we've been in the middle of a, of a study of the book of Mark for about nine months. And if I were to summarize for you what, what the entire book to this point is about, uh, the book of Mark is about Jesus coming on the scene and announcing uh, what the kingdom of God is like, what the Messiah is like, and what does it mean to follow the Messiah? What does it mean to follow the king? That, that, that's a summary of everything that's been going on in the book of Mark. And it's accelerated to the place where um, we are in the middle of a, of a sequence um, right before it gets to the last part of the book. And, and today brings this sequence to the end. And uh, the end of this sequence is about this, this interaction Jesus has been having with various religious leaders in the community who in the temple spaces have been arguing with Jesus, right? They've, they've come and it's almost this little group has gotten together and, and, and they are in opposition to Jesus. They have been through the entire book of Mark, uh, but that's built up to the degree where they've gotten together and you can just see this huddle taking place. They're here, it's like, how do we trap him? You go ask him this. And they go ask this question to try to trap him and he would give an answer that didn't fit what they were hoping to accomplish. So they go back and then, no, you go ask him this. Okay, I'll ask him this. See if we can trap him. That's been this scenario. And they've asked him questions about theology, about uh, the, the law, about following Sabbath. They've asked about marriage. They've asked about resurrections. They've asked political questions. He's just been interrogated. And each time he's asked these questions meant to trap him, he basically turns the tables back on them. Uh, to the point we had this scenario last week uh, in the passage where one of these religious leaders who had observed some of the other interactions and basically acknowledged that Jesus gave really good answers. He comes and, and basically says, Jesus, uh, Rabbi, what, what is the greatest or what is the most important of the commandments? And we discovered in the passage that he wasn't asking a question of, of the 613 laws that we all are committed to, which is number one, how can you rank them? He was more going into a, a common debate scenario, which is, what in your opinion is the foundation? What's the fundamental premise of the law? What's the, the center of it all? And Jesus responded with the, the, the passage quoting the book of Deuteronomy, what's known as the Shema, the hear. Listen, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, which is a reminder to all of us living in multi-God societies uh, that there's one God. They said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he added to it, and love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's everything. That's the center. That's the foundation. That's the fundamental premise. And this teacher of the law says, that's a great answer. You nailed it. It's true that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, is better and more important than all the sacrifices and offerings. And Jesus then said to him something very interesting. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And in our study, we, we came to grasp that when Jesus says they're not far, what he's really saying is, when are you going to move from just of your neighbor yourself? When are you going to move from acknowledging that and affirming to that to submitting to that and stepping into that and, and following me? What? You're not far, but you haven't moved here yet. 
And what's interesting is the way that passage last week closed is he, he basically said that you're not far from the kingdom. And then it said, after that, we're satisfied with his answer. Like, wow, that was a great answer. It was, they had nothing more to say. If we were doing this in today's parlance, it was like, that was a mic drop moment. No more questions? So then in our passage today, Jesus asks them a question. And it's a very interesting question, starting in verse 13. And we're going to break this into a couple little sections. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple court. So this is just continuing what's been going on. He asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Let's stop right there because that's a potential of one of those passages that makes us go, huh? Okay, the Lord said to my Lord, the Son, the Lord, what is that talking about? And what does that have to do with this passage? And why do we need to know this? Why did Mark include this? And so we ask ourselves our questions because this is actually a really important, pivotal moment in what's going on with Jesus. And, and, and for a little bit of understanding, we, if we've been you know, going to church for any length of time, if you, were, if you ever go to church on Palm Sunday, right, that celebrates the triumphal entry, Jesus entering Jerusalem, and people thinking this might be the one, this might be the Messiah, this might be the Christ, we think, and what do they refer to him as? He's the, the son of David. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They held absolutely onto this idea that the one who is going to be anointed and sent by God is going to be of the line of King David. David was the second king in chronology, but he was the, the dominant, the preeminent, the, the best king. And, and their hope that they have always held on to is that someday God is going to rescue his people and, and elevate them again to their rightful place in the world as the chosen people of God. And that would be carried out by this next king, this next anointed one, this Christ, this Messiah. And, and he was going to rescue us and he's going to restore us and, and free us from our oppressors. That was the hope they held on to, and, and that was a scriptural idea, that the Messiah would be of the line of David. But then what Jesus does, he kind of turns the table on him and says, but there's another passage, other passages that you believe in that talk about the Messiah, but, but refer to the Messiah as Lord. And in this passage, and he's quoting Psalm, chapter one, Psalm 110, and it says, David Speaking by the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies on your feet. And then it goes on about how this Messiah, this Lord, is also the priest. And it's, it's, it's this incredible statement. And he's saying, how can we say that the Messiah is David's son, but then David, who's the father, who's the, the top, he's the preeminent one, calls this Messiah his Lord. He's, how, how does both play out? It seems kind of contradictory. And so he's questioning them this way. And what's interesting in this language is that it says, the Lord said to my Lord, confusing language. And if we were to put that back into Hebrew, it actually says, Yahweh said to Adonai. God, I am, said to the Lord. And so they've always seen this picture of who is the Lord talked here that, that Yahweh speaks to. That is the Messiah. And so Jesus is basically giving a hint to this audience of something we now know because we have all of scripture and we have 2,000 years of history. That the way the Messiah, Jesus, can be both the Lord of David and David's heir is through the incarnation. 
the word made flesh dwelt among us. Right? It, it changed everything. And we can see that, but they wouldn't grasp that yet. But he's opening their eyes to so there's something bigger. I think he's basically saying, if your thoughts are that the Messiah, this anointed one that is of the line of David, is strictly about saving your country, you've missed the big picture. Jesus came to talk about and show what the kingdom of God is, which is way, way bigger than one country. And Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, is not about just rescuing a nation. He's talking about changing the whole world. The, the entire creation and every person is much bigger than you think. So this is actually a very pivotal thing where Jesus is really laying claim to his divinity in this moment. He, he's claiming something that everybody saw hints of moving towards. In other words, he's answering a question that happened very earlier in this process when he had come into the temple. Right? And he had turned over the tables, basically announcing through an object lesson that the, the old system of sacrifice is going away. It's, it's not what works anymore. It's about Jesus. Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus brings change. Jesus shows you who God is. He's changed all that. And, and when that happened, these leaders started with, who says you can do that? Who gives you that authority? And the one David spoke about when the Lord said to my Lord, who's also of the line of David. This is, this is messing with them. It's absolutely pivotal. Well, then the passage moves on. It says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and and to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. One thing we have to keep in mind at this little section of the passage is that Jesus wasn't in some little private room now, talking to a, a close little group, saying, you know, those, those teachers of the law, you've got to watch out for them. No, no, he was speaking publicly in the courts of the temple to these same people that had just asked him these questions. They were part of it. It's like, you know, be very careful, be very aware, watch out for the teachers of the law. It's not people who weren't there. These guys that are standing right here, watch out for them. This, this is sticking your neck out. You're saying these things in the presence of the very people that you're criticizing. And these are the people that, remember in his answer, you're not far from the kingdom. But what's necessary is moving from affirmation of these truths to living in it. Moving from the center is how I teach things well to the center of my life is how I live it out. Jesus says, watch out for them. In other words, they said the true thing. But but what's the real center of what they're about? Well, they they like to walk around. They like to walk around in their flowing robes, which were literally these white linen robes that either had long tassels or a train behind them. Because they like to walk around. Why? Because it drew attention. Everybody else can wear the colorful things. We are showing who we are by how we dress. And the, 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 the way the culture of the day was and what was required is if you're in the marketplace and one of these scribes walks by, you're supposed to acknowledge them. Uh, unless you're like a, a tradesperson working your craft and you're in the middle of building something you can't tear away from it. Otherwise, you're supposed to stop. Oh, blessings to see you. Thank you so much for what you do. Blessings to you. Honor to you. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for your ministry. You're supposed to do that. And this says, these guys liked it. That's what they lived for. We like the admiration. We like the accolades we give. Now, what's interesting is the scribes were not actually a like, separate category of religious leader. They were, uh, they were part of the religious leadership, but they have very particular functions. 
And we've talked before that the idea of the temple, the temple was like this giant amalgamation of everything, collaboration of everything, which was it was a, a religious center and a political center and an economic center, a social center. It was all these things. And so the scribes were there to accomplish a few things. One, they were teachers of scripture and they were teachers of the law. So they were like lawyers and instructors. So they would help people with their legal proceedings, with maybe working with their, their family estates, with their financial situations, with how they should best utilize this, how to deal with disputes within the community. They were, they were legal people, but they could also show up at somebody's home to teach their children scripture. So, so this was the role they played. And the reality is that by the law, they weren't allowed to receive a salary for their work. They weren't paid to do these things but they would show up and they were invited to all the best things. Why? Because it was good to have these people of status in our home or at our business or at our celebration because they can offer a blessing. And so we would say, hey, can you come to the, uh, the, my business that's doing some change? We had a great harvest this year. Can you come and bless what we're doing? And these people would come and they would be part of the show. And, and in gratitude, they'd receive some money on the side. And, and it talks about they like to give lengthy prayers right? Which the way it's said here, it says, Jesus says they did it for show. In other words, this wasn't prayer to God. This was prayer to the people listening. Hey, if you want a prayer like that at your next event, just ask me. Right? This was the notion. And Jesus says, this is what they like. Uh, this widow was trying to deal with her financial situation. It's like, I'll take care of that. We, we will handle your finances. And of course, we're going to keep some out for us. And so these women end up losing everything. Or it could be something like these are impoverished widows who need the help of the temple and synagogue system. And, and so they, but they're really keeping back some of those funds for themselves instead of giving it to help people. They're living off this. And it reminds us of those words Jesus gave when he, when he turned over the temp, temp, tables in the temple. Of, uh, this, this temple was meant as a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Right? And a den of thieves is where people come to feel safe after they've committed crime. This is where we come because we can get away with it. And, and so we already know there have been abusive things going on in this system. And Jesus is pointing it out right to their faces. That this is what they're about. You said the right words, but that's not the center of your life. And so then he goes on and says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the literal word is there, amen. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all go, gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. It's a great scenario, right? He, he's been having this teaching. He, he's just pointed out some things right under the noses of people he was accusing of how they were living outside of what God wanted them to be. They had the right words, but didn't follow it up with life. And, and then it says he was, came across from the treasury. You know, what a great place to observe people. We all like people watching, right? There are times it's just great to sit in the mall, right? And people watch. Sometimes we call that judging can you believe the shoes she's wearing with that? Uh, or grocery carts in the store. Really, they buy that? Um, we like to watch people. And what a great place to watch people and observe humanity is in the treasury portion of the temple. So this was most likely in what's known as the, the court of the Gentiles. 
and, or in the court of the women, probably. And, and, uh, and if we remember our, our view of the temple is, and although it wasn't circular, think like concentric circles of, of larger things working down to something central. And so outside was the court of the Gentiles, and, and then it was the court of women, and then it was um, the court where the men could be, and then eventually it worked into the Holy of Holies where the, only the high priest could go. And if you really think about each of those were not places that allowed something, they were places that were barriers to something. Gentiles can only go this far. The women can only go this far. The men can go this far. Only the priest here. And, and as Jesus said, you've taken what was a, a house for na- for, of prayer for all nations and you've turned it into the den of thieves. And part of that was this barriers that were erected that stopped people. And, and so Jesus is in this place where the treasury is and, and these offering boxes. And there were 13 offering boxes called shofar chests and they each represented a different type of offering. And a, a shofar, if you recall, was a ram's horn and it was an instrument that could be blown. And so these were things that were made in the shape of a, of a ram's horn, a trumpet hammered out of metal that emptied into a box and that's where the offering would land. So if you're thinking of hammered metal in the shape of a trumpet that funnels down to a box, when it says the wealthy were there and they threw in lots of money, we're not talking about dollar bills or checks or direct deposit. We're talking coins. Coins thrown into a metal, hammered metal trumpet-shaped thing. Clang! Right? Bing! It's important. Marcus said they threw it in so you could hear it. If you're making a great offering, everybody is going to know it. So much for anonymity. Right? But, but now this is great if you're like the pastor because you're saying, man, we're kind of low. I wonder how the offering will be this week. Well, just listen. Ooh, oh, that, that was awesome. Or it could be a week of, oh, not much going on. I wonder if they're just late. Because we care about those things. Right? And so they're making a show of what they do. They're showing up to give their tithe, to give their offering, and they show it. They show it, and everybody can hear it. And just think of the sounds. The temple is a very busy and bustle. That isn't worth more than a, it's not even worth a penny. Two little tiny things. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Amen. Amen. This little woman put in more than all the rest of them. Amen. And you can hear the disciples going, what kind of math did they teach you in Nazareth? No, no, no. She put in nothing. They gave out of their wealth. They got out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had, all she had to live on. Wow. That, 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 that's a... Crazy view. And when I see this scenario, this story, and I said this is, this is a culmination of all of Jesus' public ministry, all of his public teaching. This is going to be the end of it. And I think this culmination points out or reminds us of all kinds of stories we've heard before in the book of Mark. I mean, I couldn't help but go back to, in my mind, when Jesus fed the, the multitude of people, right? And, and, he, and, and the disciples wanted to send them all off so they can go get something to eat. And he says, you give them something to eat? I can't write. So what do you have? We have five loaves and two fish. Nothing. And his response is basically, that's perfect. I'll take those five loaves and two fish because amazing things can happen with it. And that's kind of like giving everything. Or we think of the story when they were walking on the street and it says the disciples were arguing with, they were embarrassed to tell Jesus what they were arguing about because they were arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus basically said, I tell you the truth, that if you want to be great, you have to become the least. You have to become the servant of all. Remember, and he, and he, uh, he, he brought a child before them. And it says, anyone who welcomes one such as this welcomes me. 
And we discovered that the, the view and understanding of children then wasn't the one we have, which is children are innocent and they're pure and they're full of potential. No, back then children were seen as the lowest of the socioeconomic ladder. They had no status. They had no, they had no currency. They had nothing to offer. And so he says, if, if you want to be great, you have to welcome these. Right? And, and that's so different than, than when the disciples were, were, two of the disciples came and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He says, in your kingdom, we want to have jobs of responsibility. We want to be in charge of stuff. We want to be great. Right? And Jesus said, that's not the way it works. And we countered that to blind Bartimaeus when uh, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. And then it says he, he cast away his cloak, which was his only thing he owned. That was his livelihood and his life. And he, and he followed Jesus on the way. He gave up everything. It sounds a lot like this story. And then it went even so far that some children came to see Jesus and, and, and the disciples had to turn him away. And, and, and it wasn't just, if you want to know me, you have to welcome these. He said, the kingdom of God belongs to ones like this. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you have to become like the child, the one without honor, the one that's low on the status, the, the one who has nothing to offer. You have to be lowly. That's what the kingdom is about. And we compare that to this story of these, these leaders and, and wealthy people in the story that represent those who don't get it and that it's about status and it's about what they get out of this. And, and we have this widow who put in everything she had. The very last line of this passage when it says, they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And in my mind, I see a parenthetical statement at the end of that that says, and that is what is necessary for all followers of Christ. You just kind of hear that in the background. That, that's the, the sub-content. This is what it's about. And that's what I want everybody who follows me to be like. So we look at this story and, and we say, well, what are, the, what are the lessons we do? What are the implications for us? That's always our question, right? That's a fascinating story. It happened way back then and we go, wow, that's... What are the implications? How does this enter into our lives? Who are we in this story? And, and so I, I phrase it, and we, we, what are the lessons we learn from the widow's might? And, I, and, I, and might, M-I-T-E, was the word in the King James Version. She put in mites, little coins. But, but I entitled the sermon, The Widow's Might, M-I-G-H-T. Because I think she was a strong woman, and she was commended for it. And so I think one of the things we learn is that Jesus commends those who give because they seek God not because they seek benefits from God. Now, let me say that again, because if we, we let that sink in, that's a, that's a tough one. Jesus commends those who give because they... Jesus acknowledged the center of these religious leaders' lives. And we could even say his example of the people who were wealthy in the way they gave their offerings. is that They were the center of their lives. And what they thought they would get from God because they did the godly things is what motivated them. These were people of God who were invited to think the right things and taught the right things. They taught our kids scripture. They helped our kids learn the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They taught them that. They say the right things. They do the right things. But Jesus says the center is they like to strut around in their robes. And they like people saying, oh, bless you. We're so thankful for you're here. They like to give their lengthy prayers because that gives them more money at the next event. That's what they like. That's what matters. They are saying we are after the benefits that being godly brings. 
And Jesus commends those who say they are seeking God. Period. And it's a hard thing to wrestle with because deep down, when I pray a lot, a lot of times I'm after what I think is the benefit or what it's supposed to be. It's, it's as if we, we look at God as the, the term I like to use is he's a celestial vending machine. If we insert the right thing and push the right button, we will get the desired outcome we said we should have. Or we think God owes us. I mean, I've shared before in my, my interim time here, the, the uh, kind of employment place I'm in, I do a lot of consulting, and the last long-term gig I had, I closed a few months ago. And so I'm looking again for what's next, either permanent or more consulting. And so I'm in this place of limbo, of I wonder what's next. And part of me in my prayer, it's like, God, you owe me something really deep down. That's what I feel, right? Look what all I've done. Look at the jobs I've had and the things I've sacrificed. Surely you are going to bless me with a job that fits these criteria of high pay and great schedule and status. I think I deserve that, don't you, after all I've done? And we find ourselves kind of praying that way. In fact, there are, there are whole theological pockets within Christianity that kind of, that's where they operate. If you give this right kind of seed gift, God is obligated to return that a certain amount. The only people that get rich doing that are the people that preach it. Because they're looking for the benefits from God. They're not seeking God. And if we can be honest with ourselves and say, God, forgive me for how I do that so often. We can enter in a new place of living with him because the rest of scripture teaches us so clearly God loves to give good gifts to his people. He loves the good things. He loves to outpour. Like book of James says, hey, if you're lacking wisdom, ask God. Why? Because he loves to give wisdom. The thing we have to understand when we say God loves to give good gifts is that he gets to determine what that is. And a lot of times those good gifts he gives are things like depth and maturity and the faith to see God at work, the ability to persevere the things that life throws our way, the ability to grow in the midst of struggle. He brings those good gifts, and we we desire those. But those come because we seek God, not because we try to impose a certain benefit that he's supposed to owe us. And so we learn that. God, God commends those who give because they seek God, not because they seek benefits from God. And, and on my notes, I just have like a, a face with eyebrows and a mouth going, because that's a tough statement. That if we're honest about it, it hits us right here. I think a, a second lesson we get from the, the widow's might is that focusing on what we give may cause us to ignore what we keep for ourselves. The solution is to put in everything we have. And, and it's an interesting idea, right? And I'm not going to bow mouth the, the, the concept of tithing. I think it's a good biblical principle. But the reality is, is these people that came to give their offerings, these clanging big offerings, were doing what they were supposed to do. They were giving their tithe, either 10 or 20 or 30%, depending on the time of year. They were doing what they were supposed to do, and yet God did not commend them. Out of their abundance, but they did not sacrifice their abundance. Whereas this, this poor widow showed her radical trust in God to provide for her somehow, some way. She had no honor in the society, but she loves God. And the contrast is striking. What Jesus commanded and what he didn't. We would be remiss if we look at this passage and keep it just in the realm of 
finances. Uh, oftentimes, this kind of sermon and this passage is used for, for everything that has come. What is the kingdom of God like? Who is this king that is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? And the perfect object lesson right in front of it is this group of religious leaders who are flaunting their status, this group that wants everybody to know how much they gave, and this little woman who gave a clink, clink, and that's all she had, and she was commended by God. It's not just about how much of an offering do we give. This isn't just about our finances. This is about our, our whole life. Because remember when we looked at the passage last week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Easy words to say, but very deep, all-encompassing words that say we love the Lord our God with everything we are and everything we have. And this little woman demonstrated that. That's what she showed. And so it makes us ask questions. He goes, boy, if this story were written about me, and it was me showing up at the temple with my two copper coins and not the hunched over little lady. And I know she's hunched over because that's what she looked like on the flannel graph things in Sunday school. (laughs) You know, if it was me that showed up, I had my two coins. I am 99% sure that I would have put one of those coins in. But I would have hedged my bets. And I could still be above the curve I mean, that was 10, 20, 30. I put in 50%. But that was not what was commended. She put in everything. And so this has to ask us. She put in everything she had to live on. That makes me stop and say, I need to look at everything I have. And you need to look at everything you have. And I have, I have an amazing family. I've been married to and first met my wife 37 years ago, and, and she, has, she has helped me grow in a ways that, that would have never. She's, she's expanded my worldview. She's deepened my walk with Christ. She's helped me love people better. We, we have two kids that are amazing, and they, they have terrific spouses who have made our family better. I, I had that. And Jesus says, put that in that box. Put that in that offering box. I've had some amazing opportunities professionally. You know, as a pastor for 20-some years, you, you enter into sacred spaces with people that are they're humbling. But, but deep down, I really like the accolades that come with doing it. They don't need to do that. Put, put that in the box. What, what are those experiences? What have you done? What, what have you done in your workplaces where you've got to come along some people that are deeply struggling in poverty and in, in breakups of, of families and relationships? Put that in the box. You have that. You know what else you have, Dale? You have kind of a quirky sense of humor. Put that in the box. Offer that. I've given you a passion for the word of God and you love to teach it. Can you put that in the box and offer that? Don't, don't hold it back. Give it. I've given you a desire and a, an ability to see people where they are and, and, and whether it's a corporate culture or a family or a neighborhood or a community organization to, to help people understand the value they bring and, and, to, and to kind of rise up and live instead of being oppressed by their own, their own structures in that organization. You're good at doing that. Put that in the box. And you know that unemployment situation you're in right now? That means you have some other time for some other things. Put that in the box. That's something you have. Put it all in that offering box. And that let me resound it. Don't hold it back. See, when we, when we focus on what we give, we're, we're, we're not focusing on what we still have. And I can still have an idol of 90% of my money. I put in 10%. Yeah, I still got 90. 
that, that, that can still pull me the wrong way. And, and this question isn't so much, what, what are you going to, you know, what if you're holding back those? Because she gave this, she had this abundance, and now she's wealthy. But, but there is no next page about that. She, she was identified as have the next page, because what the focus is on, giving everything. And it so incredibly succinctly summarizes all the teaching that Jesus had been doing. It's not about being great. True greatness is by being lowly and being the servant of all and giving everything. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing conclusion to this piece of the story of Jesus. and It moves here so rapidly towards the cross. But right at this moment, we ask ourselves, what, what am I holding back? Am I giving Jesus everything? Everything I have. And we have a lot. We owe it all to him.